What's going on, y'all? This is episode four, Who We Are. In this episode, Tori and I are going to talk a little bit about our developmental history, how we grew up, what experiences we had in sports. We're also going to talk to you a little bit about our inspiration to go into mental health. Get ready for the next episode of The Sports Like MDs. Do you feel me? Here we are. Here we are. Sports Psych MDs. Sports Psych MDs podcast. And I'm Tori. I'm Armin. How you guys doing tonight? How are you? How are Boom. you? Boom. Boom. You know, Tori and I were we were talking the other day and we realized that we didn't really do a great job of introducing ourselves before. I, I feel like we, we left y'all hanging a little bit. I mean, here it is. You know, we're, we're talking about all these really big topics and... Uh, it's like, who are you guys, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, who the fuck are these guys? Yeah. It's complicated stuff. And and, uh, and it is like, yes, you know, we are uh, MDs. We do have a lot of, of, of training and experience with mental health. But, I mean, mental health is one thing. Sports is something entirely different. So, yeah, we wanted to give you a podcast today, pretty much telling yeah. you guys, telling our listeners, our brand new listeners, who we are. Who are we? Who, who are, are we? we? Yeah. That's a good. That's the title of this podcast. Who are we? Like we would probably do in any great therapy session. Mm-hmm. Armin, tell us about. Tell me about your childhood. Yes, my childhood. <laughs> Take your time. Well, Doctor Trogio, um, you need some where wa- do we begin? You where need d- some water or anything? Get comfortable. <laughs> where do we start? I would probably have to go back to good old Columbia, Maryland. How about that? I uh, I was born in Columbia, Maryland. Columbia is a, a suburb of Baltimore. Baltimore is actually kind of famous right now. Apparently, it's, you know, a rat-infested shithole, <laughs> according, to, according to some people. So, turns out, Elijah Cummings, uh, who's this, you know, this congressman uh, from Maryland that Trump's going after, he was a guy that, that gave me my nomination to the Air Force Academy. Oh, wow. Awesome. Yeah, man. Um, and he's a great man. A great man. And, you know, Baltimore is far from a shithole. It's actually uh, a city with great history. But yeah, man, I uh, I grew up uh, in in that suburb, and it was Columbia is actually I want to I want to put Columbia on the map for a minute. I want to give a little shout out because one thing I did appreciate about the town I grew up in is was almost kind of like a little bit of a perfect little utopian town, man. There was this guy Jim Rouse, uh, a wealthy philanthropist who um, essentially founded the city, kind of bought a bunch of land in the '60s. It was the rumor has it that he had a um, he was a white man that had a black mistress and Scandalous. you know it was you know obviously the day and times kind of controversial for a man of his stature to of course marry a black woman but apparently he really loved this woman and he kind of had this vision of a community in which you know people of all races could you know live. Uh, peacefully, and that was in the sixties. Yeah, man, it's crazy. Oh, um, nice. I think it was like I want to say like sixty-seven. Um, you know, so you know, around like all the civil rights movement. You know, when Dr. King was assassinated, so it, it was quite a a forward-thinking kind of move by Mr. Rouse. And my uh, so my my grandparents on both sides came there in the late sixties, early seventies, uh, and bought property owned homes side by side with white families. And that was Columbia. I mean, you know, I grew up, where I grew up, it was pretty much, it felt like almost like half and half, you know, half white, half black. The schools were fully integrated and kind of balanced of, you know, white and black. So it wasn't segregated? Not at all. But it never was. Mm -hmm. that, That was the thing. Like that town never had that identity. And you felt that. Like I... I lived there uh, pretty much until I was about 10 years old. And I, I was, I'm telling you, I was completely colorblind. You know, I really was. Like, I did not understand race dynamics in the way it really is, mm-hmm. you know, because my best friends were, were white and black and whatever else. You know, there were, you know, a few others 
here and there. And it was cool. Like everybody was cool, you know, and, and because you can imagine that all the families there, just like my family kind of had, they understood what it was. So mm-hmm. if they were coming there, like they obviously came there with an attitude like, hey, you know, we're trying to get along with everybody. So I feel like that was something that really helped me in life because I, I was comfortable around everyone. You know, there was never a situation where, you know, I, I didn't feel like I could make a connection, you know, with someone who looked different from me. Well, it sounds like a great environment to grow up in. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it, it was, it was actually, I, I, I did have, I feel like that phase of my life, that was great. That was an important part of, you know, I think eventually what helped me become who I am today in terms of, you know, because as a physician and particularly as a psychiatrist, I mean, you have to be able to connect, you know, with anyone. Absolutely. Uh, and, and, you know, communicate with anyone you, know, you, you get in front of. And so Columbia was a phase of my life. You know, we went through some transitions in a, as a family and I eventually made my, made my way to Baltimore, Baltimore City. I actually lived there and went to public school there, Baltimore Polytech. What was your mascot? <laughs> oh, man. That's actually kind of funny. So it's the Poly Parrot. <laughs> but then we were also a tech school. We were a technology school, okay. right? Not, not a tech school. Nerds. School, but an engineering and math only STEM kind of. Oh, yeah, you know? nerds, for sure. Um, and so we actually called ourselves the engineers. Yeah, uh, naturally. Which is, yeah, so we were the, really the poly engineers. But, um, but anyway, one thing about poly, poly was a, it was a, a magnet school. It was, one of the, it was the best academic school in, in the city. And also had a great sports program, so I'm. That's one thing that I always nice. always tried. Right. It was right. it was yeah. So we could boast, you know, both like strong academics and a great athletics program. Um, and we actually had a legendary football coach. We had a legendary football rivalry. The Poly City, Baltimore oh. City College, was our big rival. That rivalry goes back literally to the 1800s. Classic. It's literally like I want to say back. Uh, I'm getting this wrong, mm-hmm. but maybe 1880s. Oh wow! Um, it's one of the oldest high school football rivalries in the country. So I was going into that. Is there anything um, better than like an old school high school football no, rivalry? Man, the whole no, city not at shows all. up. No, it's great. I mean, and it was. It, they we used to be able to have our our game, our annual Poly City game, in one of the big major professional football mm-hmm. stadiums every year. So it was just a big deal. And it was great to be a part of that. I always wanted to be a part of, you know, a school that had a great football team. I personally uh, was fortunate to be able to play for the football team. That football team boasted professional players like you remember Antonio Freeman, Green Bay Packers oh, wide yeah, receiver. He's a stud. Green yeah, yeah. Brett Favre's guy, right? All right. Um so yeah, he came out of yeah, he came out of my school, and and uh, I think he had a legendary catch on Monday Night Football sure once did. against the Vikings. He it sure was did. Yep. probably the best, one of the best catches of all time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but he came back to the school a couple of times and, and spoke, and so that was awesome. And and actually, so the running back, the star running back for my my team, my high school team, when I was a freshman, uh, ended up being his name was uh, Greg. Kyler or Kylie, one of the he actually ended up being Peyton Manning's running back at, at University of Tennessee. Um, I should know this. Yeah, and it, just for I don't know if he was ever like the main guy. I don't yeah. think he ever was like the main guy. Okay. But uh, but I knew. But he did. He got a, a, a scholarship to play at uh, nice. University of Tennessee. That's, a, that's big time. Back that's in Peyton big. Manning days, they were competing uh, for national exactly. championships. Don't yeah. get me he started was a on stud. that. He was a stud. Oh, yeah. yeah, had to so be to get a. It offer. was it was exciting times. Um, but uh, but yeah, I went from from Baltimore. I ended up choosing, as I mentioned earlier, the United States Air Force Academy. That's a and huge. Well, they, well, they chose me. Well, let's hear let's hear about <laughs> they, that because that's a huge decision to make as a seventeen year old. Yeah, it was, man. I, I tell you what, what really played a big role in my decision, I think, was having that background. Of, you know, playing sports as a kid because. Teamwork was something that always resonated with me. Mm-hmm. It was always a value that um, was important, and you know that's just something that in team sports that you, you learn, you know, pretty much from day one. And so that's 
uh, value they very much promote in the military is teamwork and, and team cohesion. So that made sense for me. The, the notion of going into a program that I was going to be a part of that was, was really about a greater cause, you mm-hmm. know, and a higher calling, which is also something you learn about in sports, you know. Absolutely. That, that was a connection for me that made a lot of sense. And, you know, they talk all about, it's all about God and country with the military and everything we do is about protecting the country. Okay. You know? and, and they really do a good job of, you know, indoctrinating so you, that yeah. warrior spirit. You grew up with that, those good Southern morals. I did. Actually, you know, I, I did. You know, I went to church. You know, I, w- I grew up in the Baptist church. You know, I, I did. I was in the gospel choir. Um, and, you know, my, my grandparents, whom I lived with for, for a few years, you know, they were big, you know, in the church. They were deacon and deaconess every Sunday and Wednesday and, you know, sometimes Friday. And, you know, and, but it, it really shaped me, you know, in my perspective. And I think m- in many more positive ways, you know, than anything else. And you sung in the choir. I sure did. We have a little bit of your vocals on that first episode. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, man, we got we to gotta get something better than that. So. Yeah, that <laughs> we'll was, have plenty of time. Yes, sir. Um, but there, there was, uh, yeah, the military was, it was an interesting time for me. You know, I learned a, I learned a lot, military academy especially. Um, it's all about bringing the best out of you. You know, it's really pushing you to your limit. You know, I remember basic training. You know, there were days, I, I mean, I literally woke up just like, just... <laughs> what the hell am I doing? You know, like, what the hell am I doing here? Like, this is crazy. This is not cool. You know, it's not okay. Like, you don't feel safe. But there's something, for those that make it, in the end, there is something or several things, really, that you learn about yourself that, you know, is just so powerful. Really, you can push yourself and do things you never thought Mm -hmm. were possible. And so, like, having that experience, it really helps me appreciate professional athletes and college athletes and, you know, just people that, you know, aspire to greatness and, you know, are willing to put themselves, their bodies, their lives on the line for a greater cause, a higher calling. Yeah. I, I, and, and, you know, to get, get the best out of themselves. It seems like, a, like you said, it seems like a natural transition. It takes, I imagine, a large amount of selflessness putting your individual wishes aside for, for the common good yeah, in sports and then military, even beyond that. So I can see how that may feel. Do you feel like dehumanized at any point in time? Like, like not oh God, an in- yeah. individual? <laughs> yes. But yeah. It, but coming, I mean, yeah. You know, but that's, that's part of the process, but though. Yeah, you came out the other end of it. With yeah. a, it sounds like a much better appreciation of a different it, outlook. It is part of the process, you know, because, you know, it, it's sort of like you have to... And I, and I feel like anyone who's really has had success can agree to this on some level. It's like, you know, you, you have to go through things, you know, you have to get uncomfortable. Oh, yeah. I think in order to really change, you know, and really move in a positive direction, especially, you know, when you have bad habits, uh, you don't have like the types of skills and, and experience and understanding and awareness necessary, you know, mm-hmm. to, to be all you can be. Yeah. Life's uncomfortable. Life's mm-hmm. a, a giant challenge. So you have to figure it out at some point. Yeah, you do. Well, you, yeah, you have to, you have to, you have to have a taste. You have to yeah. sample, you have to get, you have to dive in, mm-hmm. you know, at some point. So, so military, and then what, what led you into becoming a doctor? It, it was it was sort of like a it was just a journey, you know. It was just it, the odyssey. There was just all these different obstacles and crazy experiences and epiphanies and just all kinds of things along the way. And then finally, you know, in the distance, you know, this kind of mirage appears, mm-hmm. and it's like your destiny awaits you. <laughs> I I know it sounds kind of dramatic or whatever, man, but that's kind of I mean. I never, never saw myself as a doctor. And it's so weird and uncomfortable being in these circles with these guys, you know, that, that their fathers and grandfathers and whoever else were doctors and, you know, and they, their uncle and everybody. And, and they, you know, were like sidekicking with the family doc when they were 14. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and they were just born 
for this. And I just didn't have that experience. Like no one in my family was uh, a doctor. And I didn't, ha- I didn't, you know, I struggled. We struggled. My family, we were not of significant means. And I don't remember having health insurance um, as a kid. I, don't, I didn't like go to doctors and stuff like that. A lot of people probably think that's really bizarre. But that's the reality, particularly like pre-Obamacare, you know, pre-Medicare you know, Medicare reform and all this stuff. Uh, there were times when being, and it's still this way. I mean, I don't know. I'm saying there are times when, you know, not having means can, you know, make it real hard out here. Yeah. Um, and so, but I didn't have that exposure, you know, so I, I just didn't see doctors around me. I didn't go to really hospitals. I mean, I was fortunate. I was pretty healthy as a kid. So, you know, I didn't really have much of a need except for like vaccinations and physicals and things like that. But I do remember that I had, I always had a a strong intellectual curiosity. I remember reading books about psychology. I I learned to read pretty early. I think I was about three years old. And I developed an interest in psychology and reading books on psychology when I was five years old. Whoa. Um, Yeah. (laughs) I I don't know. No, seriously. My grandma, my my grandmother, um, it turns out, was uh, um, a psychiatric nurse. Oh, nice. Um, and so she had books and she had stuff, you know, and that's a hell of a job, a psychiatric nurse. Yeah. Oh, I know it really is. Especially back in the day. Oh, hundred percent. You know, um, you're spending the most time with the patients. She was a psych nurse in the army. Okay. Yeah. She, she was in the army and you know, where she started her career. Shout out to grandma Betty. Shout out. (laughs) She was for sure an inspiration. And like I said, you know, I had access to like stuff that she, I guess, had, you know, in her college experience. So there was the intellectual curiosity. And then there was a, a very early sense or sensibility that I really did enjoy helping people, uh, helping people, fixing problems, problem solving. Like I was, I remember a camp counselor at 13, 14 years old for like this church summer vacation Bible school. And I had like a little class full of seven, eight year old kids. And then, you know, I did like a lot of volunteer service in the community when I was in high school. And I always really got a lot out of like doing those kind of projects, you know, where I felt like I could impact someone else's life. So there was just, you know, and then of course I went to the military service so you felt a sense of gratification and, for those altruistic behaviors yeah, that you exactly. did growing up. Yeah, it was. And so it was actually when I was deployed, when it sort of all came together. I was in, I was at Al-Udeed Air Base uh, in Qatar. And this was in 2005. So this was like in the, in the heart of the Iraq war, kind of during the surge out there. And I was actually on the night shift. So I was working 7 p.m. to 7 a.m., six days on, one day off. That was my schedule for five months. But So I had a lot of time on my hands. (laughs) Um, And, yeah, I just, I was just, man, in my thoughts, man, in my feelings about, like, what's the next step for me? Um, I I valued being uh, a military officer. You know, I valued serving my country. But I knew it wasn't all there was for me. And, you know, there was just something tugging at me. Like, there's something bigger that kind of, you know, destined for. And, you know, I just one day was just like, fuck it, man. And I, I went and got online and I, was, and I went and I ordered this review book for the MCAT. Okay. Now we're talking. Now we're talking, right? So the reality is, man, like the idea of being a doctor always tugged at my soul it just it never seemed possible it never did it always just seemed like such a distant far off mythical kind of creature yeah for a kid from where i was from like you know and not having any of those influences and i think the other thing that really propelled me was my late grandfather he was a man who was truly great just a truly great person you know when I think of people that truly have special quality 
to impact other people. You mm-hmm. know, it's just a special way of communicating, a special way of relating, a compassionate spirit and heart. There's just certain people in my life that I've met that I put in this category, and and he's one of those people. And I literally, when you know, when he was alive and I was. I was younger, I would just sit at this guy's feet and just listen, you know, everything that he said because he was just so wise. My grandfather was a PhD, but he was in education and you know, he was school principal and then went on to, you know, work in private industry, running academic programs and things like that. But he ultimately, you know, growing up, his goal was to become a doctor and he came from humble beginnings a family that could not support him in any way financially in terms of going to college. And most people from where he was from didn't go to college anyway. You know, that was something that he was kind of aspiring to do, you know, on his own. Because the people that went to college were people who had money. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this was a really harsh lesson for him that he had to, to learn. He actually did attempt to major in biology in order to get the prerequisite courses needed for medical school labs and so forth. And he was denied by the uh, department because basically he needed a more flexible schedule to accommodate his work schedule. He was working his way through school. He had two jobs and there was no way for him to be able to do the lab apparently according to the, you know, the schedule they had. And they made no provisions for him. And they told him, look, man, it was Morgan State University. Was, mm-hmm. was, this isn't for you. You know, that's basically the message that he gave him. Yeah, this is for people that can afford exactly. to be here. And he never forgot that. That that was something that had a big impact on him. And he eventually, you know, he had to get, I think it was like a political science degree or something like that. Something that accommodated his schedule at the time, but obviously not something that was going to get him to that next level. And he told me that story. Around the, around the time, not too long before I went off to this deployment. And it was something that I sort of carried with me and de- decided that I wanted to do for him. Because here I am, I have opportunities that he never did only because of the sacrifices he made. Mm-hmm. You know, and I recognize that. And so, you know, I, I haven't really told that story to many people. I feel like my grandfather knew that we did talk about that i feel like in his heart he, he, he knew that absolutely how much of an inspiration he was for me but as a black man you know man you know at one time a black child a black boy like there's a tremendous burden in, in terms of having so many different things to overcome and still you know really achieve and that was me being a, a child of the 80s I can only imagine what it was like for him being born in the 30s, you know, wow. and being yeah. my age in the 60s, you know, and 70s when it was just like... So you're carrying forth his legacy. Yeah, what, exactly. You're, you're picking up right where he left off. And, and, you know, one thing that's great is that it's a legacy. I, you know, I know a lot of black men and women can relate to this is like it's a legacy, resilience, a legacy of overcoming the greatest odds and, you know, a legacy of really kind of like the old rap song said, Tupac trying to make a dollar out of 15 cent. I mean, that's every black man and woman understands what that's about. And that's, I think, what makes us special. And, you know, and I understood, I learned that story from him. That's part of the legacy that I, I got from him was learning how to do a lot with, you know, a little, because he became a PA. I mean, he's one of the, you know, he's a, he was Dr. Ho, the first Dr. Ho, oh, you know. Okay. So yeah, but yeah, man, that those were all for me internal narratives that mm-hmm. were working on me that really got me through. I'll never forget my grandfather right before I left for the academy. He told me this one thing, and being that he was as successful as he, he he was, it meant so much hearing from him. He was like. There were two things, two pieces of advice that he had for me. The first thing that he said was, don't sweat the small stuff. And by the way, it's all small stuff, right? <laughs> so that, that's, oh, yeah. that, was, that was important for me to hear, especially coming from this guy. You know, it's like, okay, I feel you, right? 
And then the second thing what he said was, he told me, I guess he had looked up how many graduating classes there had been from the academy, uh, which started in the, you know, in the 50s. So it was like, at that, at that time, um, I, think our, I think our first class might have opened like 54. So at that time, this would have been, you know, 98. He did the math. He said there have been X number of classes that have gone through this place, right? And he did the math and said, and that means X number of cadets graduated. He's like, if they can do it, why can't you? That's empowering. It was a drop the mic moment for me, you know, at that time in my life. I never forgot that. I remember being in basic training weeks later, just like struggling, man. These fools are waking us up like 4, 35 o'clock in the morning, banging on our, I mean, cra- Shout out to my academy brothers, man. Like, we went through some shit. Oh, mm-hmm. uh, it was crazy. Okay. But yeah, man, like, I, I never hit my grandfather's message, was resonating, man. Like, if, if they can do it, and I'm looking around these dudes, you know, why can't you? And that message also got me through med school. You yeah, know, I'm getting hyped up right through. now hearing yeah, this, this sure, story, man. man. So, yeah. So, Tori, what's up, man? I, I want to hear about you. Dude, I'm not going to be able to follow that, though. No, Shout you, out no. to your, your, on, man. your you, grandpa, your grandma, your whole need. legacy. Give us what we need. Man, I, well, I'm, I'm thankful for having you sitting across from me doing this podcast, for man. Sure, I appreciate man. you being here. Yeah. Um, where do I start? I know, right? <laughs> Shit. <laughs> it's not that easy talking about yourself. <laughs> I appreciate that. You set the bar high. You really uh, talked, gave us a lot of detail about your childhood. And there's stuff that you actually shared that I didn't know about you. So I appreciate that. And um, hopefully, us talking a little bit about ourselves will give you an idea about our, if you can't tell, our passion for what we're doing and the reasons behind it. So to set the stage, I was born in Arizona, lived there for a couple of years and moved to Texas and then to Tennessee. I was the middle child. I had a brother that was a little over a year older, almost Irish twins, and then a little brother, about three and a half years younger. And a lot of my early first childhood memories are in Tennessee, lived there from the ages of like five to 10. And that's where I was fortunate enough to, I lived in Knoxville, Tennessee, so I got to watch guess who Peyton Manning play at the University of Tennessee in front of 100,000 screaming fans in orange in that bright, some people would say offensive orange. I love it. It's my favorite color. And that was my first in-person introduction to football was this. So I was hooked immediately when I saw that. And Peyton Manning just happened to be one of my favorite players of all time. So um, that was a great first introduction. Just so happens my dad and his side of the family, he, he's from Newcastle, Pennsylvania, which is just an hour outside of Pittsburgh. And I grew up a huge Pittsburgh Steelers fan. So he used to go to all the Super Bowls when he was a kid. His, his father would take him to them. Uh, I was fortunate enough he took me to the Super Bowl back in 2006 when we beat the Seahawks. Um, I do use we from time to time when I'm referring to the Steelers or the Tennessee Vols. That's just the fandom, the fan in me. I'm a little bit of a fanatic, to be honest. So yeah, I, I grew up with Greg Lloyd, Yancey Thigpen jerseys, even rep Cordell Stewart at one point in time. Um, I love the Steelers and I love the Vols. These sports teams and the, these sports heroes kind of paint my childhood a little bit. So I have so many childhood memories where I'm sitting on the couch with my dad, my mom, my, my brothers, and we're watching the 1998 National Championship when the Tennessee Vols beat the Florida State Seminoles. Um, Peerless Price had an amazing catch. Or I'm sitting at my dad's best friend's house in Peachtree City and outside of Atlanta, and we're watching the Steelers on the big screen play against Jim Harbaugh and the Colts in the AFC Championship game, squeezing out that W only to go on to the Super Bowl. And I remember watching that Super Bowl in 1995, I believe it was. Um, My parents actually went to that Super Bowl in Arizona. I was at home. My grandma was babysitting. God bless her. Um, And unfortunately, Neil O'Donnell couldn't lead us to a victory against the Dallas Cowboys and Troy Aikman. So just just these memories are painted, and not only just the sport itself, but the people I shared the experience with, and not only watching sports, but playing sports. Obviously, me and my two brothers were outside running around constantly, nonstop, always with some sort of ball in our hands and forcing our dad to spray paint lines in the backyard for touchdowns and, and forcing him to be all-time quarterback or refer- end referee. It was just classic times. Um, so if I'm thinking back to the origins, like where this all began, like the, the love of sports 
And I think I'd have to start with my dad's side of the family. No offense to my mom's side of the family. They're, my maternal grandfather was a boss pilot, and my, my maternal grandmother was just a straight-up boss. But on my dad's side of the family, you had both sets of great-grandparents from both my paternal grandparents are from Italy. They immigrated here around 1913. They came from different places in Italy. The Graziani's are from Ravenna, which is northern Italy, um, also part of Naples as well, which is southern Italy. And then the Trogios are from almost in Austria, in Trento, which is almost on the border. I think it, they actually uh, identified as Austrian more so than Italian. But I think that's obviously they, they immigrated over here. They settled in a very blue-collar town, uh, Newcastle, Pennsylvania, which actually housed a lot of Italian immigrants. Um, so that's where my grandfather set up shop, and my grandmother was definitely the head of the household. Um, she was an amazing lady, had her extremely strong faith within the Catholic Church. That really was like her foundation along with her family, um, and it was extremely important to her, but she was never the person who was going to shove her religion down your throat or anything like that. You could sit down with her and talk about anything, and you can be completely open, and she wasn't going to judge you. You could, uh, and she'd be down to talk about any topic. Nothing's off limits with her. She was amazing. She knew how to connect with people, which is very rare. Similar to what uh, Armin was talking about, his grandfather. There's just those certain people that, that just know how to connect with people and know how to make people smile or make people feel good. And she was definitely one of those people, and not to mention she was an amazing cook. Every time she cooked dinner, it was it was like an event. Everyone would come over, the neighbors, uh, the cousins, the whole family would, would show up. The wine would be flowing, the, the cheap icy light beer would be flowing. And conversation, you have to have thick skin, definitely in an Italian-American family. Um, but it was great. And that, that, I know I'm getting a little bit off topic, but that's what it's all about. That's who I am. And settling in Newcastle, Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania just so happens to be one of the biggest football states in the country. And so my, my father was a stud high school football player. My uncle was a stud high school football player. They both went on to play college football. My dad was a fat back for Indiana University of Pennsylvania out of all places. I think he scored one touchdown in four seasons there. Um, but they love football. Um, and that's kind of where it started. It was like a seamless transition from being blue-collar Italian immigrants with that immigrant mentality, transitions flawlessly over to football. And then um, now it's me and my brothers and my cousins, and we're a little more soft than, than the older generations, but we're trying. And, and I can speak for both my brothers and my cousins that we model ourselves off their grandma. She loved sports. She loved football. She would cook and watch football at the same time. She was a legend. I probably overused that term, but yeah, she was a gosh darn legend. And yeah, so that set the foundation. So I guess I'll circle all the way back to uh, being in Tennessee. Uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so Tennessee was a great time. We were kind of just always outdoors. I, a lot of my childhood memories are just at the baseball field. We used to spend a lot of time there just playing baseball, running around. Um, Big League Chew, that was my favorite candy and, and sunflower seeds. I like the grape flavor of Big League Chew. Made you, it was shaped like the, the chewing tobacco that oh, the I professionals have. So, Absolutely. You know, you just put a big glob in your mouth and you, you chew down and you have a great time. So, yeah, childhood was great, shaped around sports. I was always trying to compete with my older brother um, or at least model myself after him. But I think I realized soon enough that I wasn't that good because he was a lot bigger, stronger, faster than I was. And I was like, all right, well, if I can't be as good as him, how am I going to play professional sports? But yeah, I love sports growing up. All my idols were sports stars. I think we mentioned before, I have King Griffey Jr., Anthony Hardaway, Barry Sanders. Those are my guys. And obviously Peyton Manning. So yeah, and then around my 10th birthday, we moved to Indiana. And obviously you, you, when I moved there, I had no friends. 10 years old, you're like, oh shit. Um, we moved over the summer, just so happened. So like, I got to spend this whole new whole summer by myself in this new city in Indiana. I love Tennessee. I didn't really want to move from there. Um, but within a couple of weeks there, there's a group of kids that showed up my doorstep all wearing their baseball uniforms, nonetheless. And I love baseball at the time. So I'm like, oh, this is going to be a perfect fit. And it was being a 10 year old at the time with, with a lot of anxiety in this new city. Um, I became best friends with these guys and we shared a common interest in sports. We had a blast that summer. If, if, if anyone has watched Stranger Things, it was kind of like that. We were riding our bikes literally everywhere. This was before the moped phase, mind you. But instead of 
like playing uh, what are the Dungeons and Dragons and fighting off supernatural beings. We were we were playing baseball, we were playing football, any type of sport, and uh, we were teepeeing houses and making doing car chases and, and, and stupid obnoxious things that ten and eleven year olds do. Um, and, and it was so much fun. We went on to play Little League All Stars together. Shout out to, to Barnsey and, and T Cod. Those are my guys even to this day. So you get, I kind of grew up from there. Um, obviously sports being a huge thing, I, I realized, I remember this conversation I had with my, my father, I think when I was like eight years old, this is before moving to Indiana, that he was asking me what I wanted to do when I grew up. And I was like, oh, I'm going to be, a, I'm going to play professional baseball. And he's like, what if that doesn't work out? Oh, I'm going to play professional basketball. What if that doesn't work out? I'm going to play professional football and, until I ran out of sports. And at that time, it's like, that's all my idols play this. I, I play these sports. Like, why can't I do this the rest of my life? That sounds awesome. But then as every kid does, you come to the realization by comparing yourself to your peers. Well, I'm not very good compared to my teammates and I can barely make the high school team. So I'm definitely not going to play professional sports. And then for me, I had an older brother who was bigger, stronger, faster, more athletic than I was. So I'm like, all right, well, he's pretty, pretty damn good. And I'm no, nowhere near that. And then I had a younger brother who on the come up is, is killing it. So I'm like, oh, I wasn't as good as he was at that age. Not to mention my cousin, same age as me, who out of high school at 18 years old was drafted by the Chicago Cubs in the third round. I'm, I'm looking around at my family members. I'm like, damn, you guys are studs. And yeah, I'm, I'm definitely not going to play professional sports. Um, but despite that, I, I played sports all throughout high school. I played baseball. I played football. I learned a lot of life lessons through sports, as as Armin has as well. As the main thing for me, teamwork, like you mentioned, absolutely learning how to put your individual goals to the side for for the common good, for the team goal. You have to make individual sacrifices. There's like a built-in hierarchy when it comes to sports. Like for baseball, for instance, if you're the best athlete, you usually play shortstop and. Once you get slid over to second base, you realize, okay, I'm not as good as the shortstop, at least defensively. So you kind of know, and then you could get frustrated and be like, oh, like, why doesn't the coach think I'm as good as him? Or you can really cherish that role and really put all forth all your effort into being the best second baseman you can be and getting better and improving. And it's not necessarily just to prove the doubters wrong or your coach wrong, but to, to prove to yourself that you can really excel, to prove to yourself that you can get better. That hard work, persistence, practice really pays off and pays dividends. And, and you can improve and you can overcome a challenge and you can kind of work around your weaknesses. And maybe you're not the biggest guy, so you learn how to, to be play smarter or play faster. You, you learn how to play to your strengths and improve your weaknesses. And that's what sports is all about. That's what sports teaches you. And that lesson can be translated directly off the field into anything you go into in life, whether it's relationships or, or your job or, or your hobby. It translates to everything. Hard work pays off. So in the future, when you undoubtedly take another loss, you're going to be better prepared. You're going to have more resilience, more maturity. You're going to understand that, okay, I've overcame a variety of different things through sports, which doesn't really seem like a big deal in retrospect, but it lays the foundation as a kid and it's huge. So you can learn to take a loss and become better for it. You're not going to be a sore loser. You're not going to sit there and sulk. And these are just valuable lessons that that it's hard for a kid to really learn. So that's why sports is such a great avenue to kind of learn these life lessons. And then the last thing I want to talk about, along with like being able to work well uh, as a member of a team, also that camaraderie you share, that's the kind of most valuable thing. And I touched on it when I moved initially to Indiana at 10 years old, two of these guys came up to my front doorstep in their baseball uniforms. We ended up playing baseball together and we're lifelong friends. Like you share this camaraderie. Um, when, when everyone, the individuals, you start making sacrifices for the greater good of the team, everyone's making sacrifices. So you kind of bond over that. You bond over the two-a-days in football, late summer practices. You bond during these tough times, and you, you kind of learn to rely on each other. Um, but it's that chatter that you have with your buddies on the bench before a big game or in between innings or during during the game. It's, it's just beautiful. And, I, and that's the biggest thing I miss about, about sports in general is just shooting the shit with my teammates on the sidelines. But, yeah, I mean, Armin and I still kind of do that to this day. Uh, but it's a little different. So yeah, moving forward, decided to go to Indiana University and in, in great city of Bloomington. Go Hoosiers. 
uh, kind of went there because their basketball team was awesome, and it was uh, seemed like a lot of fun <laughs> on my college a lot visits. Of chicks. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely some uh, beautiful coeds, male and female, and everything in between. Yeah, I had a great time there. I had a blast. Probably a little bit too much fun. Over, I didn't exactly know what I wanted to major in when I was there. I, I just was keeping an open mind. I really enjoyed my science classes, and I was like, well, what can I do with, with a science degree? And it just so happens, obviously, pre-med has a lot of overlap with the science courses. In the back of my head, it's like, oh, my, my dad always mentioned that I should be a doctor. And similarly to what Armin said, I never really considered it as a potential career. No one in my family was a doctor. A lot of nurses, my, a lot of aunts mm-hmm. of my aunts were nurses. Right. So they were in the medical field, but no doctors. So I always thought it was like kind of a mythical creature as well. But then I said, I said, like, fuck it. Let's try it out. Let's do pre-med. And my GPA was good enough to get me into medical school. Stayed it in, in my state, went to Indiana University School of Medicine. Go Hoosiers once again. And uh, once again, went, went in there with an open mind, not knowing what specialty I wanted to do. And I had my psychiatry rotation. I had no clue about psychiatry. It was kind of the great unknown for me which actually was the initial thing that uh, was attractive about psychiatry. I had no idea what it was, so I was interested. I've come to learn that I'm interested in things that I don't know about. I have this, I guess, a curiosity about myself. And the people were so friendly, the, the residents, the attendings, even the, the, the patients were extremely grateful. So that was immediately, this is different than like my OB-GYN or surgery rotation where yeah. everyone's pissed off and at each other's necks. Um, the more I looked into it, the more I really enjoyed that. You have the time. It's built in. It's part of your job to sit down across from the individual and get to know them as an individual versus other specialties. You don't. You just don't have the time. They're not designed like that. We get to sit there and really get to know the person. We get to know their histories, their deepest, darkest secrets, their vulnerabilities. We get to know the inner workings of their brain. And you really learn to care about the person, the individual. And that's part of your job when it comes to conceptualizing the case or, or making a diagnosis or or treating someone, it, there's not like a specific algorithm you go down like there are in so many other specialties. You don't, you don't like draw blood and go down an algorithm to make a diagnosis. You really conceptualize and there's not one single way to do it. Each psychiatrist kind of has their own way to, of doing it, which can be challenging, but it's also extremely interesting and, and gratifying. And, and that all together is the reason why I wanted to go into psychiatry. For sure, man. Yeah. I mean, what I didn't realize going into medical school, and I didn't even realize leaving medical school, is that mental health is the core of it all. It's, it's the foundation of disease and illness. And it really has a, a sort of relevance in any disease process. So irrespective of what specialty you happen to be a part of, you're going to be confronted with a mental health challenge because there's just an emotional connection and a psychological experience associated with any disease, you know, any, mm-hmm. any symptom, any time you feel just unwell. Yeah. There's an anxiety, is a worry, a frustration you know, associated with that, just something that you got a stress you know, that you have to deal with. And not all of us are built quite the same way. And we all have uh, variations in terms of our abilities to, to tolerate stress and to maintain and withstand stress. And so I think having an appreciation for mental health is really something that all doctors should have. And for me, recognizing that uh, mental health was, was sort of like at the core of all of it is really what inspired me into the field. So um, I'm glad you brought I, that up because that, yeah, I didn't learn, learn that until I actually got into a psychiatry residency and actually like exactly. learned psychiatry. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. then you're right. A lot of all, all physicians should, should understand this, but they don't. Yeah, no, they don't, man. And, um, I actually, I went to Howard university, uh, for medical school and, and, you know, right there at home, DC, uh, very close to where I grew up. And I actually didn't have such a great experience on my psychiatry rotation. It, it was, you know, I, 
a number of, of different reasons, but um, I ultimately had a great experience with my neurology rotation. Uh-oh. I loved uh, the neuroscience unit in my first and second year and you know, the academic years of med school. So I was almost like kind of recruited into neurology in a sense because the chairman and the department and I were pretty close and, um, and I ended up you know, kind of getting involved with some research studies and stuff like that that really just kind of propelled me into neurology. And it was actually in neurology and, and being a resident in neurology where I realized that mental health was my true calling because um, there was a case that I had on a stroke service of a young black man, he was actually 21, who, uh, who was admitted to the unit with right-sided arm and leg weakness and and he had he had uh, he was aphasic he you know he, he couldn't speak so immediately you're thinking left MCA right if you're a neurologist you know, left what does that mean it means uh, the middle cerebral artery yeah <laughs> classic um, which is one of the one of the larger arteries or blood supplies to uh, to our brain um, and supplies our speech center so you know when we have a stroke. In that particular artery, we often can have difficulty with speech. So we're like, okay, this kid's 21. Like, this is a very unusual stroke presentation. Because usually when you're thinking stroke, you're thinking someone, you know, 50s plus, you know, somebody with, you know, high blood pressure and diabetes and, you know, all these bad things. Um, This is a young, healthy kid. You know, he was in good shape. Turns out MRI was stone cold negative. Uh Uh-oh. Meaning, you know, there was no stroke. Ooh. And so, but he had these symptoms, you know, and, and it was very impressive on exam. I mean, they, it looked like he, it was the real deal. It, was, you know, it didn't look like he was faking it, in other words. Um, and so we couldn't figure it out. And we did, you know, our typical kind of routine blood testing and other tests. And we we're coming up empty. So we were kind of getting down to the point where it was like, is this some sort of like weird zebra kind of case, you know, one in a million that you've never even seen reported in the literature? Or, you know, what is this going to be? And oftentimes in cases like that on a, a medical unit, psychiatry ends up getting involved. Yeah, right? calling They're the psych first docs. ones that you know, are going to be consulted um, when no one can figure it out. And sure enough, this lady came, uh, this doctor that, and she just blew my mind. We had just pretty much threw our hands up. And, you know, she had gone in, in the room at that point, the patient's mother and I believe his girlfriend were at the bedside. We gave them privacy. You know, she kind of interviewed them. She came out like maybe 30 minutes. This is a, cape, a case, by the way, that had stumped us for this point, like the last, you know, three days. Okay. Okay. Obviously, family's asking questions. We don't have answers. And this lady swoops in and she basically joins our rounds and she broke it down. She explained what I eventually came to understand uh, as the phenomenon of conversion disorder, mm-hmm. the, the functional neurologic symptom disorder, which I have also come to learn through uh, additional training is very much driven by anxiety, you know, and the experience of anxiety. And I remember. I didn't catch that particular aspect of it when she was explaining, but she did recommend starting uh, benzodiazepine medication, like Ativan, right? A lot of people know about Xanax. That's a popular one. Um, Unfortunately. <laughs> right? But no, in, the, in, the, on the, in a hospital setting, it actually can be money. There's a lot of different uh, conditions that were in which Ativan can be very helpful and man, the short you term. know it in the short term. In the short term, like as in like probably a month or less, right? Up to a month. Um, but yeah, like I would say he started to respond within a couple of days. And by the end of the week, man, he walked out of there. You know, turns out the other part that, you know, I, I sort of hadn't dropped on you yet was that he had been in the middle of a crisis because apparently his girlfriend, who he was planning to marry, he was very, you know, they were very close, and his mom had had a big fight. Mm-hmm. Like the day before 
he was admitted. And, you know, I don't know exactly what happened. I think there might have been a kid involved. I, you know, I don't remember all the details, but this was essentially almost like an, you know, an acute kind of adjustment disorder slash, you know, conversion disorder. And it was blew my mind. That case blew my mind. That's powerful. Cause it, it really blew my mind. Because conversion, conversion disorder, that, it's interesting because it looks like a neurological disorder. It looks like a stroke. It does. It looks like a seizure. It looks like you can't, like you're, you're blind. And you really are, these people who have these conversion disorders really do have the weakness in the legs or really do have seizures or really yeah. can't see. Yeah. They're not faking it. Yeah. But it's, it's, crazy. it's, it's caused by a, a stressor, a, a, a psychiatric stressor, like, a, like an anxiety or an adjustment disorder. Yeah, man. It was so impressive. And I, I did my neurology training at Duke University, you know, and they have like a world renowned neurology department. So these were these were the you know, these guys, these attendings I was working with that were doing the exams. I mean, you know, they knew what they were doing. Yeah. So and, what you know, and they were fooled. I mean we Yeah. You know, so what so you jumped ship over to psychiatry? I did, yeah. After my so I spent two years in neurology and then I that's yeah, and it was that case though, man, that case it just, I never forgot it. You know, then every, every doctor kind of has like certain cases they never forget. You know, just inspire them in different ways, you know, and you need that as a doctor because we go through a lot of, you know, just we see a lot of crazy shit, you know, and some days, you know, you're just like, wow. And so you need those, those kind of like cases that are just like really super interesting or really heartwarming, you know, to kind of keep it going. Things right? that make it meaningful. Meaningful, yeah, for sure. And that was it. And that in many ways was the seed that was planted that eventually, you know, became my ambition. Blossomed into the Dr. Armino's, the, the psychiatrist. The yeah. Psychiatrist. So, and that's, turns out, brings, is what brought you and me together Aww. here and now, right? Because I ended up taking an opportunity. There was a, a second year resident position at UCLA, the, the UCLA VA psychiatry training program. And as I was deciding, you know, my next move and, you know, determining that I was going to transition to psychiatry, I saw that, I went for it, and I got it. Uh, and um, that's where I met Dr. Trojo here. Hell yeah. Four years ago, man. It's been a while. Over four years. I know. It's wild. And you're man. done? Holy oh, cow, man. Unbelievable. Yeah. We were man. two newbies in the in the in the giant Los Angeles city trying to just figure it out, you know? Yep. That was that was good times. Uh, I'm glad you 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 made that decision, that that transition. Let me tell you a little bit quickly and then yeah. I want to get into our f- kind of four years together. But mm-hmm. when I was applying for residency, um, I wanted to find a program in a city that gave me a new experience in Indiana. Because Indiana, I love the place, grew up there. Probably will never move back there. Um, I wanted something different. I wanted, Indiana's kind of like, there's a dichotomy there, white and black, with a little bit of other sprinkled in. I did go to high school at West Lafayette Junior Senior High School, Red Devils, controversial mascot. Mine, mine's a little bit more aggressive than yours. What were you again, the Polly Pipers? <laughs> the, the Pied Pipe, no. The, no, we were the engineers, and then the Polly Parrot was our, like... Okay. Yeah. Oh, you were the engineers, but you, your mascot was a was parrot. A parrot, yeah. Okay, we were the Red Devils, and our mascot was a Red Devil. Right. Because um, <laughs> it makes sense. But anyways, that, that high school is on Purdue University's campus, so my high school actually was fairly diverse, up to 30% of kind of Asian ethnic background. But anyways, I wanted, uh, wanted a city and a program that had a little bit more diversity with regards to... Individuals I can not only work with, which with regards to patients, but also individuals I can work side by side with, and also wanted a, a city itself outside of work that, that had a variety of experiences. So, the program I chose, the same one Armand chose, um, UCLA VA Sepulveda program, was a great fit because it not only was in the city of Los Angeles, this giant melting pot, so so different. Um, than Indiana, but it, it, it was a, really a kind of a microcosm of the city itself because we got to work in the VA, um, one of the largest veteran administrations in the country. Yeah, um, We got to care up to, I think each of us had almost like 100 outpatient veterans um, mm-hmm. in our clinic. And we also got to work in the county. So the uninsured, which had a, its own variety of, of cultural and ethnic backgrounds. And we got to work at UCLA, 
with the insured patients, the quote-unquote privileged patients, the, the, some celebrity patients as well. So we had a variety of experiences. I think both Harm and I are really well-trained to be clinicians within psychiatry. I'll, I'll be the first to admit that we don't have a huge research background, but we're out there. We have, we're trained to be very efficient and effective clinicians in that program that if someone walks into our office, chances are we've we've had experience with a similar type of, yeah. of individual. In yeah, the and past. research is super important, um, no doubt. That's you know, the tip it's, it's of the spear, the frontier. driving the future and, you know, and sort of like all of the awakenings and all of the advances and all of the you know, pioneering advances and treatments. That starts with research. But I, I think being a clinician and being a strong clinician as a doctor is really important too. Because what I've come to appreciate about clinical medicine is not just about prescribing medicine. It's really about problem solving. It's really about being someone that can see the whole picture and just solve problems, you know, figure out what needs to be done. Yeah, being very pr- pragmatic, and you learn that working in the VA and the yeah, county for absolutely. sure. What, what, what do we need to do to get this person, this individual, and, you know, and you know, collectively, you know, this entire patient population from unhealthy to healthy, you know, as safely and efficiently as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a lot that goes into it, you know, and I, and I think that because, you know, particularly in mental health, you know, psychiatrists are uniquely positioned to really be able to, you know, prescribe any form of treatment and ultimately manage any level of care. I think it's really important that psychiatrists be leading programs, so mental health programs, and, you know, be entrenched, you know, and on the front lines when it comes to managing mental health issues, especially large-scale, you know, strategic level kind of stuff. And, you know, that's why I think it's, it's so important. And I think that's what, you know, a lot of stuff that we started talking about, right? We started to kind of have conversations just through our our friendship through, you know, hanging out and stuff like that, you know, sports fans, you know, halftime, you know, just, you know, talking about life, talking about different issues, like, what do we want to do with our careers? And, you know, what are some areas, what are some like niches in society that we could potentially get involved with that's kind of out of the box? That's not just like you run of the mill psychiatrist. And I think what we did was we took our love for, for sports you know, and our passion for, you know, all the things and all the values that sports taught us. And, you know, we took our career aspirations and, you know, we took our training uh, and, you know, very unique training opportunity uh, to become great clinicians. Absolutely. Let me piggyback on that real quick. We got the efficiency of working at the VA in the county, seeing just masses of amounts of of patients, very acutely psychotic PTSD in managed care, patients, yeah, managed care in right. acute settings, and then we combine that with working at the the beautiful large academic center, the giant machine, which is UCLA, right. that has every resource you could imagine. They're on the tip of the spear when it comes to they have an inpatient eating disorders unit, they have intensive outpatient programs, they have partial hospitalization programs, they have inpatient programs. Yeah, yeah anyone um, that trains at UCLA, man, is, is you're, you're going to be ready. They have electroconvulsive therapy. Yes, we still do ECT. They have TMS, tr- transmagnetic stimulation. and You name it, they have it. They have specialty clinics for each mental illness, essentially. That Yeah, man. And then also, so LA County uh, happens to be the most well-funded public mental health program in the country second largest as and, well yeah and second largest and so you know there we got to learn kind of the the best practices in community medicine you know and large scale you know population health so we got a taste of it all man and that, yeah and that's the beauty of what i mentioned before about psychiatry there's a lot of different ways to do it to do in an interview to do an evaluation to conceptualize a case to treat a case we got exposed to all different styles to, to kind of decide, okay, what is my style going to be? Yeah, exactly. And, and here we are today. Yep. And so then in our third year training, so anybody that's in medicine, they, you know, they know about this, this, this thing called the grand rounds. Ooh, and, and intimidating. Grand rounds, 
that's kind of like the the big deal conference. Every department, every uh, medical department has their own grand rounds conference that they host every week mm-hmm. you know, in the major academic hospitals. And it's something and, you have to do at least once before you graduate. Um, and so for our third year grand rounds, our presentation, uh, or Tori and I decided to pair up and and do our presentation on sports psychiatry. Yeah. Um, it was about two over over two years ago. Yeah, or t- about two years ago. Yeah, it's Ooh. been about that time. It's crazy, man. Time flies. Time flies. We having fun. That's where we finally merge the two passions yeah. of ours. Because like you, what you briefly touched on earlier is like right when we met each other, like we vibed on. Let's go out and check out LA. Let's check out this nightlife. See what LA has to offer. None of us lived out here before, so we had no idea. So com- we learn though common interest there. All right, um, and then we also started getting a lot of sports related conversations. Uh, Armin is f- uh, big major fans of uh, a, a very some polarizing sports figures: Tom oh, Brady, goodness. LeBron James. So a lot of our conversations <laughs> uh, revolved around that. I was a t- Peyton Manning yeah. fan at the time, and at that time, Peyton Manning was. was I, I just, I'm just attracted to greatness. Peyton Manning all. was kind. Of, it was, him and Tom were going back and forth. Peyton was kind of at the top of the game right at that point when I moved here because he's on I the Broncos. Think Peyton was ever at the top of the game. The season before I moved out here is when he broke all Tom Brady's records. Yes, and he ended up losing. That's right, getting blown out in the Super Bowl. But he won the Super Bowl 2016 when I was out here, and Tom Brady was in a little bit of a lull. Peyton Manning, anyways, two and one. Two and one. Legacy. Peyton Manning, two and one against Tom Brady in the AFC Championship. Because otherwise, Eli would have had him. Okay. Yeah. Fair (laughs) enough. So we we still go at it from time to time when it comes to that. Um, So we just had a lot of passionate conversations about sports, like super passionate. We can go on and on, wax on and on about sports. You and you probably don't want to necessarily hear us just talk about sports. Well, yeah, absolutely. And another, I think, really, really important reason why we it was you know psychiatry had to be in the mix. Well, actually, I'm going to put it a different way. I think I, I was always destined to potentially do uh, some sort of podcast about psychiatry. But why sports came into the mix for me was because I, I recognize that through this platform, through this narrative that we're creating here, as a black man, as a doctor, you know, as a psychiatrist, and there aren't many black psychiatrists, and that is something that I, I wanted to, to really sit down and think about because there are a lot of mixed messages about mental health in the black community. And really, there aren't very many strong voices. I have seen, you know, through the work I do in Compton with LA County, that the education that, you know, at least that community has, it's a predominantly black community, when it comes to their mental health and you know the value of the treatment and so forth it's it's mind-blowing the misconceptions and it's mind-blowing to me how long it takes for so many of them to come in to get help you know and when i get them in that room you know one-on-one and we're talking man and they're really revealing to me what's really on their hearts i feel that pain i feel that energy and that tension that they have with having to having to to deal with this condition every day that no one else around them understands and so many people around them think is 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 a nuisance or an annoyance a, a an inconvenience and it, it it it's man it's crazy because like i know that for them it's almost like you know they have to hide it and or pretend like it's not really a thing, just to be accepted by their families, just to be able to have friends, you know, people that are willing to to hang out with them, you know, and and mental health is such a prized possession, and it's something that is just not fully appreciated in in my community, you know, and I think it has everything to do with just a lack of awareness, a lack of understanding, and just, you know, all these misconceptions. Mm-hmm. So that these are things, man, that really inspired me. And, and so when I thought about sports and why I wanted to connect to the, the lens of sports is because sports figures in my community are some of our, our best. You know, I mean, 
guys in this, you know, that, that make it to the level of professional athlete, I mean, you know, that's something that so many black kids would love to accomplish. Because we, we see that success, right? We see how much wealth, how much fame, the type of lifestyle you can have. And, you know, if you think about it, you know, where a lot of us come from, I mean, that's huge. You know, that, that's, that, that's what we all want. And we don't really have too many other examples. I mean, you look outside of sports and entertainment, and there just aren't that many examples, you know, really of that type of success. So athletes really can be heroes. They are heroes for many. Yeah, they, were, they were my heroes, you know, Michael Jordan, Mike Tyson, you know, guys like Jerry, Jerry Rice, you know, I, he was my idol. That was your guy? That was my guy. I loved Jerry Rice. I love the 49ers because I love Jerry Rice, you know, of course. Yeah, you can't hate Jerry Rice. No, <laughs> no, definitely not. Um, but these are people, you know, that really inspired me to try to achieve greatness. And I figure what better way of, of introducing mental health and the, the idea of mental illness then through the lens of a hero, right? And, and their, and their okay. journey, and their journey. I right? love that. So that for me, you know, was I think how, you know, sports and psychiatry kind of came together. That's beautiful, that's powerful. Yeah. Well, I'm glad we're, we're in this journey together. And I think sports, sports, sports and psychiatry are, are, are a perfect fit. Like you said, there's a huge stigma against mental illness and there's an even bigger stigma against mental illness in sports. And, and if we can attack mental illness in sports and destigmatize it within sports, it's going to transition outside of sports and into all of life. So I'm, I'm glad we're here doing this and I'm, I'm happy for the future. I'm happy to work with Dr. Armin Hose. Thanks for sharing your, your life story, man. It's, it's powerful. For sure, man. You too. Now, I, I learned a lot about you today, things I didn't know. It's cool. It's, uh, it's always great to hear people's stories, you know, and that's what makes, I think, sports so great, so interesting, so compelling. You know, I think that that's what makes the, the life cycle and experience of an athlete so compelling. Um, yeah, you really, you really do get invested in the athlete, and you, you, root, you root for the people. You root for the individual. Yes, you so do. That's why we wanted to give you guys our backstory a little bit. Yeah, man, and also why I think psychiatry and psychology is such a great fit for, for sports, you know, because we're all about stories mm-hmm. in yeah. mental health. We're all about stories. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. Armin, let's, let's end the stigma. And let's continue the conversation.